1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
2: This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. There's a new biography of Edward Said. He died in 2003. In addition to being the leading American advocate for Palestinians and the author of Orientalism, one of the key scholarly books of the later 20th century, he was also classical music critic for The Nation and wrote about Palestine for the magazine. Adam Schatz was the nation's literary editor for much of that time. Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, and other publications. He's also been a visiting professor at Bard and at NYU. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, this new biography is called Places of Mind. It's written by Timothy Brennan, and it gives us a chance to talk about Edward Said. He was born in Jerusalem in 1935. His parents were Palestinian Christians. He was an American citizen. You open your piece in the new LRB back in 1963, when a young Edward Said joined the English Department at Columbia, and people were spreading a rumor about him. What was the rumor?
3: Uh, the rumor, John, was that he was a Jew from Alexandria.
2: And what do you make of that?
3: Well, it, it's, it's, it's certainly entertaining, and it's also amusing because in a sense, as I suggest in this piece, he, he might as well have been a Jew from, from Alexandria. He, uh, he had grown up uh, mostly uh, in Cairo, uh, m- many of his uh, schoolmates were uh middle eastern jews uh his uh piano instructor Ignaz Tigerman a renowned uh, specialist in the romantic repertoire who who ran a school um in, in cairo was a polish jewish refugee so it's not as though the the intellectual uh, culture of secular judaism uh, was was foreign to said
2: this new biography was preceded by his own autobiography, he called it Out of Place. What did he see there about his family and his parents? Well,
3: S- Said's uh, memoir, which I think is a, one of his finest books, is a very pained, agonized, uh, sometimes uh, excruciatingly uh, Freudian uh, depiction of a childhood that was at one and the same time uh, very privileged. He grew up in a, in a rather wealthy family, and uh, miserable. It was a very claustrophobic uh, family setting. His father was rather tyrannical, very cold. Um, At times, uh, he claimed he used a cane with him. His mother, uh, Hilda, he described as the most intimate companion he had in his first 25 years. And uh, she was alternately uh, doting and withholding. And she regulated his life, regulated his moods, he says, um, and took a keen interest, of course, in his relationships with women in particular.
2: And his parents, his father in particular, wanted him to get an American education, so they got him into a elite prep school. And then he went to Princeton in the 50s, a really conservative place during a conservative era. What was that like for him? Princeton was
3: a very conservative school. But Saeed did manage, uh, I think, to find his uh, his intellectual vocation there as a, as a literary critic. Uh, he developed uh, close relationships, friendships that would uh, last through much of his lifetime with uh, people like the future art critic uh, Michael Fried and uh, and Said continued his uh, you know his work as a as a musician. In fact, uh, when he was at Princeton, he was still flirting with the idea of a career as a concert pianist. Eventually, of course. Uh, He chose literature.
2: He was a young faculty member at Columbia when the campus became a kind of a world center of anti-war action in 1967 and 68. And his politics also changed dramatically in 1967 and 68, but not because of Vietnam. He was certainly uh, sympathetic to the campaign against the war in Vietnam. He was
3: not a supporter of the war in Vietnam. He had already developed fierce anti-imperialist convictions. But he was rather traditionalist in his view of the university as a safe haven and sanctuary for intellectual inquiry. And he uh, uh, did not appreciate it when students came to his class and uh, wanted to shut down the classroom. He, ca- he threatened to call security. Oh. Vietnam, I think, was a, a far less passionate concern to him than the emergence of the Palestinian guerrilla movement um, 1968 was was uh, a very important year um, in the struggle for Palestine. Uh, it was the time of the Battle of Karameh, which uh, was a, a, a battle by uh, Palestinian guerrillas Fatah in Jordan against the invading Israeli army. Uh, the Palestinians. Lost that battle, but but fought very bravely, and so a myth emerged around the Battle of Karameh, and that helped to propel uh, the PLO forward. Saeed made his first trip uh, to Jordan in 1969, and then a year later he met Yasser Arafat. 1967, the, the 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 Arab defeat by Israel, and then 68, the emergence of the Palestinian guerrilla movement. This was a critical time in the formation of his political consciousness.
2: And then in 1978. 20 after 20 years as a basically conventional English professor in terms of his academic work, he published Orientalism, which changed pretty much everything for him and and for the humanities. In the New Yorker, Pankaj Mishra calls Orientalism a book that launched a thousand academic careers. Why was that book so huge and important? Right, and and that and and perhaps
3: that's even an understatement. What Said did in that book was to argue that the the image um, that we have of the East, uh, he paid special attention to the Middle East and to some extent to South Asia, was a construction of of an imperialist West. In fact, the the very production of Western knowledge uh, about the societies of, of the Middle East was geared towards furthering and consolidating a whole system of power and domination over these societies.
2: Orientalism was misunderstood, of course. Edward was not an enemy of Western civ; he always loved what we call the canon um, of great European writers. Well, the, the book was, I think, um, taken
3: to be a, a kind of wholesale denunciation of uh, Western uh, literature um, and culture and and misread and misconstrued in those terms, both by the book's many detractors on the right, but also uh, by a a number of people, either on the left or in in Islamist movements um, that looked with great suspicion on on Western, Western learning, Western intellectual traditions. The impact of a book is, of course, measured not only by the influence that it has, but on the number of misreadings that it inspires.
2: Well, uh, at the time, I was one of those Marxist types whose critique of Orientalism was that if you're going to unmask Orientalism as an ideology, you need an analysis of the reality that it is concealing and distorting the actual relations, the real relations of dominance and resistance that exist in the Middle East. And Orientalism, of course, didn't do that. This was fairly conventional orthodox Marxist objection. But this was the era when theory had become dominant in literary studies in the United States, especially French theory, starting with Foucault, who Edward was a champion of, and then Jacques Derrida, his deconstruction you know, provoked the left with the, his doctrine of undecidability. The French literary theorists in America claimed to be engaging in a form of political action, a critique of domination, even though they wrote in a kind of private language that was mostly uh, read by grad students in comp lit. Edward eventually broke with theory in quotes. Uh, What were his reasons? I mean, Orientalism, as you say,
3: was, 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 was very indebted to French theory, but really especially to Foucault. He never had much interest in Derrida's work. And, and certainly the very fact that Orientalism omitted any discussion of the lived reality um, of the Middle East and focused on the Middle East as discursive formation was Foucauldian. Through and through. But you also see in that book, especially in the last third of it, a shift from from Foucault's vision of a discursive formation towards a more politically engaged um, analysis influenced by, on the one hand, Antonio Gramsci with his critique of hegemony, and on the other by Noam Chomsky with his uh, uh, analysis of how consent is manufactured in otherwise democratic societies. And by the, I would say by the, the, the late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, Said's interests had shifted decisively towards figures like Noam Chomsky and also the British uh, art critic and essayist, uh, John Berger, who was very interested in how the oppressed and the subaltern uh, uh, resist and, and who, um, believe that no um, system of oppression is ever entirely totalizing. There are always pockets of resistance, and the point of analysis is to identify what those points of resistance might be and to profit from them. And, and so Saeed very much moved in that direction. I think also um, what happened was that as Saeed became a more uh, renowned and public figure and became increasingly uh, comfortable with himself, he found that he could shake off some of the encumbrances of theoreticism and jargon and, and all the kind of academic stuff that that I think for reasons of uh, power and prestige might have felt necessary to him at one point. He realized no, he could write in a more colloquial style. He could write in a more direct fashion, and that's really the that's really um, how his um, uh, work uh, changed in those years. And you see that already in a book like *The World of Text*. Um, and the critic, um, in which he really announces his break with with French theory and his turn towards a more political, quote unquote, worldly criticism.
2: So he became not just the voice of Palestine for Americans, but as you have mentioned, he became an advisor to Yasser Arafat and the PLO. He urged Arafat to negotiate a two-state solution and then the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestinians were finally signed in 1993. How did that work out for Edward Said?
3: Right. Well, I mean, Edward Said's career is 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 uh, is filled with uh, with paradoxes. Um, uh, like any good intellectual, um, <laughs> he uh, he became an advisor to Arafat around 1974 when he helped to draft Arafat's uh, November 74 address to the United Nations, and it was. It was was Edward Said who contributed um, the line about uh, not allowing uh, the olive branch to fall from my hand. He at the time was essentially a supporter of a two-state solution, which is uh, the position that he advocated in in, uh, the question of Palestine, um, which did not win him uh, many admirers among his Palestinian comrades um, at the time. He also expressed reservations about the efficacy of armed struggle. He wasn't against armed struggle per se. He wasn't a pacifist, but he believed that the Palestinian movement's strength lay in civil resistance and in the moral case of Palestine as a a human rights and anti-colonial issue. Um, The Palestinians were vastly outnumbered militarily. There was no way they could fight Israel. And so he believed that they had to focus on, on different methods um, of, of um, pressing their case. Now, by, 19, by the uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, Said becomes increasingly disenchanted uh, with Arafat's rule for a number of reasons. Partly, it's the disaster of the Lebanese Civil War and the PLO's involvement in that. Partly, it's the growing corruption of the PLO's uh, bureaucrats, which he observes close up. Um, in their uh, exile in Tunis. Partly it is Arafat's decision to fully back Saddam Hussein in the Gulf War, which is calamitous and forces the PLO to uh, negotiate prematurely because they had lost so much funding and all these Palestinians had been kicked out of Kuwait. And so by the time the Oslo Accords um, are signed in 1993, he has become increasingly frustrated with Arafat, and he sees this agreement as a capitulation to Israel, in which instead of defending Palestinian borders, uh, Palestinians will be defending Israeli security, and essentially providing the uh, the, the Israelis with the gendarme, and not really realizing the project of Palestinian self-determination. So his position at that point begins to shift from two states to binationalism.
2: And what was the response of the PLO to Edward Said's critique of Oslo?
3: Well, the the PLO never officially uh, responded to to Said. However, um, at a certain point, uh, Said's books in Arabic, not in English, but his books in Arabic were banned in the Palestinian Authority, which essentially meant that unless you, you know, read English, you couldn't read Said's work, the work of the most important undeniably the most important Palestinian intellectual of his time. The books were banned. A number of the people close to Edward came to have his view of Oslo. So I I do think he was quite prescient. But at the time, he was seen as a naysayer, certainly. And there were those who grumbled that after all, Saeed had the luxury of high-handedly denouncing the Oslo Accords, because after all, He had a nice apartment on the Upper West Side. He could go over where he wanted to. He wasn't confined to the West Bank or the the Gaza Strip. So there were those um, criticisms. Um, But I think today his position is viewed as quite a prescient one.
2: And then he changed his position on on Palestine in the Middle East. He gave up the fight for an independent Palestinian state and he became one of the first advocates of a single binational secular democratic state that would guarantee equal rights to Jews and Arabs. That was huge, and that was pretty daring at the time, wasn't it? Well, he was one of a of, an, of a of a number of people, I
3: think, who who adopted this view. Um, of course, later, um, his his friend Tony Judd um, would make a splash in the New York Review of Books by essentially making uh, the same argument. It was it was bold, but I think what was remarkable about um, his defense of, of, of binationalism, whether or not you agree about its uh, fe- feasibility were the terms in which he cast it. And they were the terms that really um, marked his criticism um, as an intellectual and in his writings on everything from literature to freedom of speech. I mean, an emphasis on, Uh, equality, on dialogue, on coexistence, on on having a place for different narratives that didn't necessarily fit, and an insistence on a kind of universal humanism.
2: And all the time that he was speaking out for Palestine and reshaping post-colonial studies, he was playing the piano and he was writing about classical music, writing for you at The Nation. I remember that we brought him to UC Irvine, where I'm on the faculty, to give some endowed lectures in 1990. He had a grand piano set up in the lecture hall, and he talked about music in the writing of Adorno, Proust, and Benjamin, and then he played examples from Beethoven, Wagner, and Strauss. We loved it. He loved doing it. Let's talk about Edward as a musician and as a music critic. I think that there's a tendency
3: to see Edward's love of music and his writings on music as a, a kind of dandyish uh, pastime, separate from his writings on on, on literature, on culture, uh, on politics. Separate, to be sure, from his advocacy of the Palestinian cause. But in, in my view, these are all interwoven, and. He was very fond of Goethe's remark that art is about a voyage uh, to the other. And I think this is really how he understood um, music. I think this is why he um, named the music ensemble for Arab and Israeli youth musicians, the youth orchestra, the West East Devon Orchestra, which was a tribute to to Goethe's West East Devon, a collection of poems. uh, inspired um, by, uh, by Hafez, the Persian poet. Music was also a great passion for, for Edward uh, because it was a kind of um, artistic expression of what he called counterpoint. He loved counterpoint in intellectual argument. He loved it in music. This is one of the reasons why he was uh, obsessed with Glenn Gould. He went to every Glenn Gould concert uh, that he could when he was a graduate student uh, at Harvard. Uh, he wrote one of his most memorable essays uh, on Gould, Glenn Gould, uh, as intellectual. Music for Edward uh, was not simply a matter of enjoyment, not simply a matter of aesthetic beauty. It was also a way of thinking. And I think that music permeates his writing practice. You, you cannot separate Said's writing from his music the two really go hand in hand. And one of the most fascinating aspects of Saeed's career is the turn in his last years to a concept that he discovered uh, in Adorno, the concept uh, of late style. Adorno had theorized that in uh, Beethoven's late sonatas, late quartets, Beethoven was creating music that was not an expression of a kind of serene wisdom. It was not a summing up. There was nothing graceful about it. It was an explosion. It was a, these were works of difficulty. They were sometimes works of, of intense fragmentation, daring dissonances. He called them the catastrophes of music. And Said was very much drawn to this idea of late style because I think it also spoke to his experience as a Palestinian intellectual who had broken with the mainstream of the Palestinian movement and who, had, who essentially decided, I would prefer the dissonance and difficulty of my life living apart from the movement that I've devoted myself to for three decades than accept this false peace of Oslo. His writing was his late style. His late style was his way of being a Palestinian intellectual and being a man in the world.
2: Adam Schatz. the nation's former literary editor. He wrote about Edward Said for the London Review of Books. Thank you, Adam. This was great.
3: Thanks so much, John. It was a pleasure talking to you.